This week and next week, your elders are happy to invite Matt Bostrom uh, to provide the word for us. Uh, Matt is a pastoral assistant at Grace and Peace Church in downtown, another church plant like ourselves of Village 7. Uh, and he joins us today with his wife Callie and his son Mark. Um, Matt was born here in Colorado Springs, uh, a covenant child of the PCA graduated from CSU, then uh, somehow got it in his mind to leave beautiful Colorado and go to the University of Florida, where he worked with RUF and has been gone away from his beautiful home state for, is it 14 years now? But now has had good sense to return to us. And so um, please welcome Matt and Callie this week and next. Thank you, Luke. Well, it is my joy and honor to be bringing the word to you this morning. Um, I did grow up in Colorado Springs as a covenant child in the PCA, and actually, it was great um, seeing Shane fight just a few minutes ago. Her husband baptized me over 34 years ago, so it's, it's great to be in this body this morning. Well, I'm excited when I heard that you guys are working through the Gospel of Luke, I've never really preached through Luke at all, but all preaching should be Christ-centered, but I love the opportunity to preach about the life and mission of Christ. There's something so amazing about exploring the person and work of Jesus in the Gospels. We're going back to the source, to the very words and actions of God incarnate on this earth 2,000 years ago. And throughout the first six chapters of the book, Luke has been attempting to answer the question, who is Jesus? Luke began to answer this question by recounting the advent of Christ's birth and genealogical roots. He then moved us through the preparations for his ministry by John the Baptist, his temptations in the wilderness, and his early ministry preaching and healing. In chapter six, we had the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus expounds to the people what the kingdom of God looks like. In chapter 7, Luke transitions us from the words of Jesus to the works of Jesus. The actions in this chapter serve to show us the offices of Christ as our true prophet, priest, and king. And while these offices can never fully be separated from each other, I do believe that Luke intentionally structured this chapter to highlight these specific aspects of the ministry of Christ. So in our passage this morning, we will look at Christ the King, his authority and his character, and his power over all things, even death itself. And next week, we will look at Christ the prophet, his message, his patience, and the surety of his promises. And in two weeks, I'm not sure who will be preaching, but I'm sure that they will do a wonderful job closing out the chapter, looking at Christ the priest, who alone has the power to forgive sins and bring us into relationship with God. For those taking notes, our sermon will 
uh, follow three main points. First, the command of the king. Second, the compassion of the king. And third, crowning the king. And my prayer this morning is that we would see Christ again as our true king, that we would make him the Lord of our lives, and that we would yearn for his coming kingdom of peace. So with all that introduction aside, let us hear now the reading of God's word from Luke 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they had come to Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we open your word and explore the person and work of Jesus, that you would give us insight, that by your spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to Jesus, who is our king, that we would see him again, afresh, anew, as he has been revealed to us in the scriptures. Lord, may the meditations of our hearts, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, our great rock and redeemer. Amen. In The Return of the King, Tolkien paints a beautiful picture of the character and compassion of Aragorn, the ranger and warrior who is destined by birth to be king. And near the end of the book, after the ba massive battle of Pelennor Fields has been won and Minas Tirith has been saved from defeat and destruction, still there is great mourning and loss. Thousands lie on the field dead and more are wounded. There is much chaos and lack of leadership. The steward of the city is dead, and his son also lies on the brink of death. It is into this devastation that Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the rightful king of all men, appears. He enters the city, but not as king, with all his fanfare and glory that 
should accompany his entering the city. Instead, his arrival is unannounced. His mission is, for all intents and purposes, a secret. He enters the city and goes to the houses of healing where the wounded are di- and dying are being cared for. And all through the night, he works alongside the other healers, working with the wounded of the city. He brings hope and renewal to those who are thought beyond saving. And there is one old healer working alongside him who watches him closely and marvels at the care and the ability of this ranger. Her memory is stirred, and she remembers a prophecy long forgotten. The hands of a king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king will be known. And through her, rumors began to spread that the true king of Gondor had returned and now walked among the people, bringing healing in his hands. Now, Tolkien was not writing in a vacuum. He was not writing the Lord of the Rings out of nothing. He often pulled images and motifs about the reality of our world, about God's kingdom, and placed them into his kingdom of Middle-earth. This is one of the subtle or maybe not so subtle images of the true kingship of Christ. Tolkien was tapping into our deep longings for a king who will bring healing, restoration, and renewal. A king who will usher in a kingdom of true peace and joy, not just for a lifetime, but for all time. In our passage today, King Jesus is on display, but he can only be seen by those who have been granted sight. In many ways, his mission is in secret, under the radar, hidden in plain sight. Veiled in flesh, the king of the universe has come. The coming of Christ also lacked the pomp and circumstance that the Israelites expected at the arrival of their Messiah but he did come with power nonetheless. I love reading about the miracles of Jesus. It's as if he couldn't help but heal the sick and heal and bring back the broken. His miracles flowed from his very being. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. The words and actions of Jesus are so intertwined that we can never separate the two. His words carried true power and his actions displayed the authenticity of his words. He taught them about the coming kingdom of God in chapter 6, the blessedness of its glory. And in this chapter, he performs miracles that are an ushering in of that glory. Future kingdom realities brought to the here and now. The miracles of Jesus serve as demonstrations of his power, proclaiming through deeds the healing and restoration that belongs to God alone. So in this chapter, we see displays of his authority. We see the command of the king. In verse 1, we read that after Jesus had finished all of his teaching on the Sermon on the Plain, he moved into the city of Capernaum. And Capernaum was a fishing town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in an area where Jesus often and frequently performs miracles and teaches and does ministry. In chapter 4, Luke records that he had already spent much time in the city teaching in the synagogues, restoring a man who had been possessed by an unclean spirit, and healing many, including Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Capernaum is also where Jesus healed the paralytic who was lowered by friends through the roof in chapter 5. Jesus was well known to this city. Everyone in this town of a few thousand people would have heard of his power. And even the Gentile Roman authorities had heard of him. 
Given its size and importance in the region, Capernaum had a Roman garrison of around 100 soldiers with support staff and servants. Military and Roman occupying rule of the area was given to a centurion who would have near complete authority under the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, and King Herod Antipas. And unlike Herod, who abused his power and his authority and who, who we know for his great wickedness, this centurion was a humble man and a God-fearing Gentile. We learn in verses 4 and 5 that he has not used his power to exploit the people of Capernaum, but rather have lo- has loved the people of Israel. He even funded the building of their new synagogue. When he heard that Jesus was back in the area, he had hope for one of his trusted servants who was dying. He sent elders of the people to ask Jesus for healing for his servant. And here we see an interesting contrast. We see a contrast between the elders of the Jews and their reaction towards Jesus and the actions and the words of the centurion. The elders find Jesus and start demanding a miracle from him. There are no words of respect or honor They simply begin pleading with arguments of how much this man deserves a miracle. He is worthy of your healing, they tell Jesus. Isn't it interesting that those who think they deserve something almost always demand? We demand things of God when we feel entitled, when we think we have earned something from him or deserve his favor. But we can never earn his favor. Apart from his grace and kindness, the only thing that we deserve from the holy king of the universe is death for our treason against him. We need to contrast this attitude of demanding from the religious leaders with that of the centurion. While the Jewish leaders open with his worthiness, he is aware of his unworthiness. Though he is a man of power and authority, he knows he is broken, insufficient in and of himself. His position has not given him a spirit of pride, rather one of humility. He likely has stayed at his servant's bedside during this time, and when he hears Jesus is actually coming to his house, he sends friends to Jesus with a message. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. In this culture, Jewish people did not mingle socially with Gentiles. It was seen as beneath them and even defiling to enter the house of a Gentile. The centurion knows that to have Jesus come into his home would make him ritually unclean in need of purification. He respects Jesus' reputation enough to say, don't come into my house, even as his servant is dying. He also addresses him here as Lord, with one of the highest honors that he could. He says, Lord, my Lord. He has faith that the authority and command of Jesus has power, whether he is near or whether he is far away. Just say the word. The centurion understood the nature of command because he himself was a man of authority and under authority. When he spoke, people listened. When he commanded, people went. And he had faith in the greater authority of Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, we see arguments from the lesser to the greater. Later in Luke in chapter 11, Jesus asked his disciples this question. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The argument is from the lesser, if you sinful fathers know how to feed your kids, to the greater. How much more will your perfect father provide for you? We see the centurion making the same type of argument here. He's basically saying, look, I am just a man and people respond to my authority and obey my words. How much more, my Lord, will they respond to you who have power over the very created order? Your authority outstrips mine. Speak and it will be done. Sometimes I think we forget about the power that Jesus held in restraint. He is the one, Hebrews tells us, who is the heir of all things. Through his authority, the world was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, even now, even then, by the word of his power. In Matthew's account of the arrest of Jesus, after Peter cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus rebuked him and turns and says to him, Do you not think that I can appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Wow, 12 legions of angels were always at the disposal of Jesus' command like that? One angel descended in power to roll away the stone at the, to- stone at the tomb of Jesus, and his appearance was like lightning. An earthquake accompanied his descent, and the guards, trained soldiers, fell as dead men in terror. One angel. Jesus told Peter that if he willed it, he could just say the word, and his father would instantly send him 72,000 angels armed in terrible power, ready to make war on those who came against their king. Jesus could have opted out at any point, yet he did not. A few years ago, I found a quote that I love about the nature of true command. Power held in restraint is power at its highest, for then is shown not only the possession of strength, but the possession of the power to control the strength one possesses. True power is found in restraining the might and power that one holds. Jesus was always in control of himself. Our king was and always is in complete command of all things, including himself. What his enemies thought was his weakness was really the command of his character. True power held in restraint. His love, his peace, his patience and gentleness in the face of their continued scoffing, abuse, and lies. Abraham Lincoln said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Jesus is the only one who has ever passed this test. He had all power at his disposal, and his character was shown to be pure. His command, righteous and good. He had patience and restraint in the face of the demands of the elders in Capernaum. He was able to marvel at the faith of the centurion while not making the healing all about the worthiness of his actions. It was not the demanding of the Jews. It was not even the humility and the faith of the centurion that caused Jesus to go toward the house with healing. It was the character of the king. The sheer loving kindness of who he is that drew him to that dying servant. With his mercy. At the command of Christ, the servant was made well. I don't know who they are, but as they say, the proof was in the pudding. 
Jesus could speak all day long about the coming power and authority of the kingdom, but the confirming evidence was in the fact that the elders and people returned and found the servant well. The whole town would have marveled at the authority of Jesus. Who could just speak and heal a man that they had never met somewhere else in a room that they had never seen? Who is this Jesus? Some must have remembered the prophecies concerning the coming king. In the last book of the prophets, in the final paragraph of God's word to his people before 400 years of silence, they would have read in Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Healing was and is a hallmark of the king. A king fully in command and filled with compassion. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As they drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen from among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. After this short stint in Capernaum, Jesus headed about 20 miles southwest to the town of Nain, which was in the hill country surrounding his hometown of Nazareth. A large crowd from Capernaum followed Jesus as he traveled, likely buzzing with excitement and energy at the power displayed at his latest miracle. This large crowd met another large crowd coming out of the town gate. And this crowd from Nain was, in a lot of ways, the exact opposite of the crowd from Capernaum. They were mourning. They were weeping, wailing, heartbroken at the death of one of their young men. And standing near, her lifeless son was a mother who was ravaged by pain and loss. A widow who had now lost her husband and her son, who had lost everything. And with no immediate relative, she would have no claims to property or status in the town and would likely have been forced to live off the welfare of others for the rest of her life. She was destitute economically, relationally. She was broken, alone in the world. As these crowds drew near to one another, Jesus sees this woman and has compassion on her. He saw her brokenness. He saw her pain and was filled with kindness toward her. He said something that seems to be callous and cruel and would be if he were not the true king. He says to her, do not weep. This widow had lost every bit of personal happiness in this life. I can't imagine a more appropriate situation in which to weep. If I were her, I would have been angry at this interruption of my son's funeral, confused about this man who is leading this excited crowd and likely too numb to say or do anything other than to stare at Jesus as he continued to walk toward me. The rest of the crowd from Nain apparently didn't know what to 
do with Jesus either. And as Jesus walked up and touched the wood planks on which this dead man was being carried, they all likely, both crowds, would have stopped in amazement and stunned silence as he reached out and touched this dead man. To touch a dead body or even a coffin was a defilement. The law in Numbers 19.11 states, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. The disciples themselves were likely horrified. What is Jesus doing touching this dead body? Why does he keep doing crazy things like this? Just stop, Jesus. They knew about the law that was given to Moses that you were to remove yourself from defiling things, that if you touch something unclean, you became unclean. You had to go through the process of purification, often lasting days to be ceremonially clean again. But you see, Jesus is different. He is holy God. When Jesus touched people who were diseased, malformed, outcast, or otherwise unclean, which happens quite a bit in the Gospels. He did not become unclean. Rather, those who were unclean when they touched Jesus became clean themselves. Jesus didn't just touch the dead man, but he spoke to him. Young man, I say to you, arise. I don't know about you, but I have found that my commands often lack the power of transformation. I have a two-year-old son, or he's almost two, and I can look at Mark with all the might of my will behind my stare and say, Mark, get out of the bathroom. Do not pull any more toilet paper off of the roll. And he will look right back at me, and I can see it in his eyes saying, oh yeah, Dada, this roll? And then he runs across the room pulling the (laughs) toilet paper roll, and it goes everywhere. My words carry little power to transform even my young son. But the God who called light out of darkness, his words are potent. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man heard and he obeyed. Life flooded into his body and he sat up and began to speak. Fear would have seized me too if I were there at this moment. Resurrection would be an amazing thing to witness, but terrifying, unique, so unnatural that I would be shocked and awe and truly terrified of this man. Who is this Jesus? The people immediately recognized the hand of God at work and glorified God, though even then most did not realize that it was God himself in their midst. And in a final act of tenderness, Jesus gave this boy back to his mother, restored, redeemed, brought back to life. See, the compassion of Jesus changes us. The compassion of Jesus pursues us. It restores us. It brings us hope and life. It calls us to arise to a newness of life. The compassion of Jesus wipes away our tears our grief. If we fast forward a bit to the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth, we read in Revelation 21.4, that God will wipe every tear from our eye, and that death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things who have passed away. The loving kindness of our God has accomplished these things. Without the compassion of God, without him reaching out in love to you and me, we would all be lost in darkness and in death. And the Bible is is not just a good book with good stories. It is the story. It is the word that God reveals. And in that word of God, we see Christ, the very word of God. The Bible demands that we do something when confronted with Christ the King. All humanity will, in the end, either curse him and die or will crown him and live. Luke 7 reveals the command and compassion of Jesus and begs the question, will you crown him as the king in your life? The point of Luke's message in these passages is not that we would have some fun new facts for our Bible trivia team or just to show that Jesus did some cool things. The point is that we would make Jesus the king of our own hearts, that we would place him as the Lord of our lives, that we would not merely acknowledge his kingship, but that we would actually follow him. It isn't until a few chapters later in in Luke 9 that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, the Christ of God. And that answer should come as no surprise to us in chapter 9 of Luke. We see his confession and think, honestly, guys, Duh, you've seen all these things for so long. How could you not have made this, made this proclamation before? How could you not see that from the very beginning? We all see and saw that coming. But I do think we need to cut the disciples some slack for their lack of faith and, and hard-heartedness and thickness of skulls. See, I have read the Gospels many times. I know what the Bible says about Jesus. I have studied the Word of God for years And I do believe and trust in him alone for my salvation. But how often do I continue to live as if I am my own king? In the one hand, I cling to his promises. And with the other hand, I cling to my idols and self-justifications. I demand things of God. I think I deserve things from him. Health, comfort, happiness. I look away from his kingdom and instantly begin to build castles and crowns for myself again. We need to learn again and again and again how to run to him and fall at his feet and worship, to live in light of the king's grace. Like Joshua, we must choose this day whom we will serve. And not just this day, but every day and every hour, our battle is to affirm, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the power to fight this battle comes as we look to our king. He is the one who gives his spirit of power and life to his people. In John 5.21, we read, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In Christ, we have life and we have purpose. He has called us into the very work of his kingdom. In the houses of healing and the return of the king, Aragorn heads or heals the wounded and saves the life of Faramir, who is the son of the steward of the city. Faramir has been in a coma for some time and on the brink of death, and most think he's beyond saving, and Aragorn heals him. And Faramir's response to being called back to the living by Aragorn is a great look into the regenerative nature of being called out of darkness 
and into the marvelous light of Christ. Suddenly, Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes, and he looked on Aragorn, who bent over him, and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly. My Lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest for a while and take food and be ready when I return. I will, my lord, said Faramir, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? We have the light of the knowledge and love and kindness of God kindled in our hearts by the Spirit. We have been called out of darkness to awake and to live in light of the kingdom of our God. We are called to be ready. And here is an argument from the lesser to the greater for you. If the fictional King Aragorn stirs such love and devotion in our hearts, how much more the true reigning and returning King of the universe deserves our love and our devotion. True freedom comes by laying aside our crowns, by giving up our thrones, by following our rightful king. Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. He died the death that we deserve so that we might gain the riches of his life. He humbled himself to the point of death, becoming a servant so that we might become sons and daughters of the king. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote this, Something glorious happened when the world's worst murder became the world's only salvation. When the cross, a symbol of torture, became a symbol of life and hope. Christ's humility magnifies his exaltation. And so the Prince of Peace, the Lamb who let himself be slain, will be glorified, not because he employed brute force against Satan, but by the very fact that he did not. Our King has brought us salvation and peace, and our King is coming again. The first coming of Jesus into this world was hidden. It was secret in so many ways. The return of the King will be in power and in glory. In his first coming, our king brought us redemption and grace. He brought his mercy upon the world and not his justice. In his second coming, our king will arrive, as many expected him to at the first, in awesome power to bring justice and restore all things to himself. God will vindicate his holy name and dispense pure and perfect justice to the world. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is not for the faint of heart. Listen to this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus, our King. The same Jesus who bounced children on his lap, who had patience with boneheaded disciples, who healed and forgave and brought life from death. 
Love and justice meet in our God. Command and compassion reign in our King. I urge you, follow him. Trust him. Let us join our King in the building and the expanding of his kingdom. He is worthy of all honor and glory, now and in the ages to come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we find life and light in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he is the king, that he created and sustains all things by the word of his power, and that he is coming again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you clearly again, to tremble in awe before you, knowing that you love us, that you care for us, that you have given your very life to secure ours. God, I pray that this knowledge would not just remain as head knowledge, but that it would change us, that we would place you as the Lord of our hearts, that we would follow you, that we would obey you, that we would see you as our authority and our commander. Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.